Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Season 2, Episode 11 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, better known as Episode number 31. I'm Kyle. I'm your host. Still, we're doing it every single week. Uh, Guys, what's happening? Welcome to another edition of your favorite mediocre historical podcast that you sometimes enjoy listening to. How is everyone out there in crazy... Weatherland, uh, it would we would be going to miss if we didn't do a quick weather report. Of course, as we all know, podcasting is the best medium for weather reporting. And outside, it's pretty nice. Uh, although you you know, on the day you listen to this, it may not be nice, and that's actually a very good uh, little composition as to how weather actually is right now in the springtime in the Midwest, where one day. You get a 60-degree, 70-degree, wonderful, sunny, beautiful spring day, and then two days later, you have 20 degrees and a foot of snow on the ground, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and it's April, and it's halfway through April, so you're still dealing with that shit all the way up to May. Just, you know, just weather things, hashtag just weather things, Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I need to fill these things up in the front half a little bit more, so I ramble on about random bullshit that no one gives a shit about. But hey, that's why, that's why I put in chapters to the podcast. If you don't enjoy listening to me uh, ramble on at the beginning, obviously that's why I do the prequel episodes now, so I can ramble a little bit more than I uh, do at the moment. But I also uh, like to talk a little bit before the show starts, just because I think it's weird. Some people, you know, I've been reading a lot lately on on Reddit in their podcasting sub subreddits about how people are really not into the banter and the ranting at the beginning of the show. And I understand that. Now, of course, most of those people are listening to shows where they they BS around for 15, 20, 30 minutes before they get into the meat of their show. And it's usually multiple people ranting around and doing their thing rather than just one guy, yours truly, talking to himself in the mic for a couple minutes and trying to figure out some way to not awkwardly segue into what the show is actually about. You know what? It's my goddamn show. I'll do whatever I want to. And what I want to do is talk about nothing at all in particular in a way that seems, you know, reasonable and, and, and whatever. You know, it just it is it is what it is. This is me. This is my personality. If you know me personally, you know that I, you know, speak a lot like this anyhow. So, you know, that's just a, that's for those of you who aren't friends with me regularly, if you don't know me personally, then this is a lot like you're going to get if you ever met me in real life. Just, you know, kind of shooting the shit, being random, just doing whatever it is before we actually talk about whatever is important. And I think that is itself important to let people know that that's how things work 
with the host of your show. That subreddit be fucking damned talking about this. I mean, just everybody wanting this cool, you know, 15-minute, tight-ass content, rich, just deep, thick podcast. Fuck that shit. Nobody has that. Nobody does that. If people do do that, then good for them. There is no podcast that I can think of off the top of my head that is like that. And honestly, to me, if you are a podcast like that, I actually am anti that. Now, I'm not saying that you're bad by any means, but where's the fun in somebody going to a mic and talking about the stuff they want to talk about without a little bit of humanity and a little bit of personality thrown into the mix? I don't think it's as fun as it could be, but apparently, according to the the Mavens and the the experts over on that subreddit, then, you know, that's the only way you could ever make your podcast successful. So, I don't know, maybe I should listen to them. So, somebody would actually, you know, i get more than, you know, 100 downloads an episode on this show. But, hey, it is what it is. I enjoy what I'm doing. Hopefully, if you are one of my very few people who are listening, that you also enjoy what you're hearing. And today's episode, the third of the four episodes on Ladies Month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, we are going to talk about a very famous and very popular and important lady in history, a little lady by the name of Amelia Earhart. Interesting story with this one, with a fun, you know, update, unsolved mysteries update at the end. You won't want to miss that, even though you probably already know what I'm talking about. Guys, episode 31, Amelia Earhart, Knowledge from the Couch podcast, stick with us. Amelia Earhart, famed, famed aviator, one of the very first women in United States history, and we talked about another one earlier in one of our shows, Nellie Bly, but one of the first women aviators in the United States to be granted a pilot's license. So already, we could just stop the show there, 17 seconds in, you know, Amelia Earhart, one of the first women to have a pilot's license, boom, done. Kick-ass woman, boom, done, but of course... Of course you know that's not how we do it here. We got to get long-witted with the context, don't we? We got to go through the story of where she came from, how she came to be, and what happened to Amelia Earhart at the end of her life. Well, at first, of course, Amelia Earhart was born 1897, Atchison, Kansas, a fellow Midwestern gal. She was born in Atchison, Kansas. She had a little sister. And her and her little sister, as they were growing up, showed little sparks of what would eventually, you know, sort of manifest itself in her as this adventurous, wonderful spirit that she used to, you know, transition herself into a life of flying airplanes, especially, you know, and especially uh, interestingly dangerous occupation at the time that she took it up. Because, of course, like we were talking about with our other subject, Flying uh, at this point in aviation was really just kind of a just a ramshackle operation. You know, 
air, you know, heavier heavier than air flight, that is to say fixed wing uh, air flight, had only really been a thing for the last maybe, you know, 20, 25 years or so when she finally took it up later in her life. And, you know, something that's only that old that humans have been working on for centuries and finally figured out how to do it. You know, there are a lot of kinks to be worked out. So already you could see the adventurousness in this this young woman's spirit. But when we go back to her childhood, we see that her and her little sister loved to go out and kind of be tomboys, for lack of a better term. And that's what they were typically called by at least Amelia Earhart's owned grandparents, who disapproved, by the way, of her wearing of bloomers, bloomers being basically, you know, big old uh, hammer pants, kind of, that Amelia Earhart loved to wear as a kid because she found them comfortable. That was one of her uh, uh, ways to already rebel right off the bat. Remember, this is late uh, 1800s, and women hadn't as of yet really busted out of the mold of, hey, wear all this awful, uncomfortable clothing and just be subservient and uh, deal with it. You know, she was already like, fuck that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Her and her little sister, Grace, Amelia went by Millie for, you know, short for Amelia, Millie. And Grace went by Pidge, which is kind of a weird name. Doesn't have much to do with Grace, but it is what it is. So Amelia or Millie and Grace or Pidge would often go out and be tomboys and have fun and their run in the neighborhood. It was noted as a child that they spent long hours Climbing trees, uh, hunting rats with a rifle, uh, belly slamming their sleds downhill. So just running and just going nuts, sledding. They love their rough and tumble play. They were uh, noted as having, quote, kept worms, moths, katydids, and a tree toad in a growing collection gathered in all of their outdoor outings. In 1904, with the help of their uncle, they cobbled together a homemade ramp fashioned after a roller coaster she had seen on a trip to St. Louis and secured the ramp to the roof of their family tool shed. She, <laughs> that was her first flight, so she 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 pops up this uh, this ramp up to this uh, this house here and she, she flies off the end of it, um, bruised lip, torn dress, and, in her words, a sensation of exhilaration. It's just like flying, she said. So you can already see the seed being planted of what she would eventually become when she was an older woman, when she was a grown woman. In addition to this sort of uh, adventurous spirit, that's just kind of her personality, she did grow up in a fairly affluent family. Her father was a railroad lawyer, and her mother uh, herself came from some older wealth. So really, Grace and Amelia didn't want for much when they were growing up. They had plenty to go around and plenty to uh, to, to count on. So really, they, they were fortunate enough, and she understood this very much, that they were fortunate enough to have a childhood really free of, of the worries of a lot of people, especially uh, at that time. Unfortunately, though, all good things like this must come to an end, much like Chekhov's gun. If I ever mention something happening, typically that always means that something bad will happen in the future of what I'm talking about. And of course, her father, uh, Edwin, was a raging alcoholic, and this basically totally, utterly destroyed his career as a railroad lawyer. 
to the point where after a few years of dealing with that sort of thing and the sudden death of her grandmother who, you know, had a bunch of, uh, of money herself and control of the estate, all things led eventually to her moving to Chicago and trying to figure out what she was going to do with her life at this point. This is now in 1916. So her mom moves her and her sister up to Chicago and immediately, in a real bold move at this time especially, Amelia starts canvassing nearby high schools in Chicago trying to find the best science program. A woman who was just absolutely not satisfied with the bullshit of the day, you know, with the whole, this is your traditional uh, female role. She didn't want any of that shit. She went around canvassing Chicago high schools, find, trying to find the best science programs. She eventually enrolls in Hyde Park High School, but she hated it there. Uh, you know, just is what it is. They had a good program, just didn't fit in very well there. Um, she was just, the thing about her was, she was always aspiring to to do something in a predominantly male-oriented field. She used to keep a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about successful women who held positions in predominantly male-oriented fields, things like film direction, production, law, advertising, management, mechanical engineering, all that kind of stuff. She wanted to get into something like that because she just wasn't into, like I was saying, the predominantly female-oriented fields at the time. She begins junior college then in uh, Rydall, Pennsylvania, but she didn't complete her program because during that time in uh, Christmas vacation in 1917, Amelia goes and visits her sister who now lives in Toronto. And this is during, I guess, towards the end of World War I. Uh, she's hanging out up there with her sister and she starts seeing you know, the returning of wounded soldiers. Of course, there were plenty of Canadian soldiers in World War I as well. She decides that this inspires her, and she receives training as a nurse's aide from the Red Cross and begins work at Spadina Military Hospital, doing things like preparing food in the kitchen for patients with their special diets and also handing out medication from the pharmacy dispensary. She then, interestingly enough, another callback to one of my episodes. In 1918, during the Spanish flu pandemic, if you would like to go back about 15 or so episodes. I think it was episode, I want to say episode 17 or 18 of this podcast. We talked about the Spanish flu for about an hour and how insane it was in particular. The Spanish flu could not leave alone literally anybody. And Amelia Earhart came down with the Spanish flu while treating people in that hospital for the very same thing. She then suffered from pneumonia, as we said, was one of those uh, the, the key secondary infections that would come along from the Spanish flu at that time that ended up killing a lot of people. Not her, of course, but it did affect her. She suffered from pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis, so up in her sinuses, uh, uh, around her nose area, she was having extreme inflammation and pain. She was hospitalized in November of 1918 from that pneumonia and got out about a month later in December. Her sinus-related symptoms were pain and pressure around one eye and copious mucus drainage via the nostrils and the throat. This is something that she would deal with for the rest of her life. She had chronic sinusitis after this was all said and done, 
and it affected her flying a little bit and her activities later in life. Sometimes even on the airfield, she was forced to wear a bandage on her cheek to cover a small drainage tube that had been placed to get rid of all the gunk and nastiness. So something as simple as the Spanish flu already affecting her life going forward, especially in her flying. Speaking of flying, let's get into the very meat of the episode. Of course, when you think of Amelia Earhart, you think pilot. That is her her main sort of, of, of image that if you had a stamp of Amelia Earhart on your letter, it would probably be her as her, you know, her pilot self. That is her identity. And it all started in 1920, particularly December of 1920 in Long Beach, California, where she was now residing. Her and her uh, now rehabilitated father visited an airfield where a man named Frank Hawks gave her a ride in an airplane that would change her life. She was quoted in saying, by the time I had got two or 300 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. After that 10-minute flight she took with him, which cost her father a whopping 10 bucks, she immediately became determined to learn to be a pilot. She worked a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and stenographer at a local telephone company, managing to save $1,000 for flying lessons. Now, let's just think about that for a sec. 1000 bucks is a lot of money now in 2018, Fucking $1,000 in 1920 could buy, like, a house and a half. Like, it's it's a lot of goddamn money to learn how to fly. So, good to know that flying lessons have always been expensive, even since the beginning of, uh, of, of air travel. She had her first lesson on January 3rd of 1921 at Kinner Field, which is near Long Beach, California. After arriving at the airfield with one singular request saying, quote, I want to fly. Will you teach me? In order to reach the airfield, she had to take a bus to the very end of its line, hop off, and then walk another four miles just to get to the airfield. Yes, she was extremely committed to learning how to fly. She learned how to fly in a little Kinner uh, Airster biplane, a very bright yellow plane that she nicknamed the Canary, and she flew that plane to an altitude in 1922 of 14,000 feet, which at that time was a world record for a female pilot. On the 23rd, or excuse me, May 15th of 1923, I can read, Earhart then became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. So top 20 female Pilot's licenses, Earhart comes in as number 16 on that list. Now, unfortunately, her 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 aviation career came to a bit of a speed bump where she lost some extra money that she had through her family on a failed uh, gypsum mine, apparently. Uh, this led to her having to sell her planes off, and she bought a car and drove back across the country and ended up in Boston in 1924, where she eventually started working as a teacher and then a social worker at the Denison House, which is a Boston, excuse me, a Boston area settlement house. A settlement house being a thing that doesn't really exist anymore at all, but an attempt at that time to basically co-mix people who are low income and poverty with people who are a little bit more fortunate, middle and upper income altogether in a gigantic uh, sort of cooperative type house, and the idea 
was that the richer and more fortunate people would sort of mentor and pass on and help out those who were less fortunate in the hopes that they could also become a little less uh, a little less so in the poverty things. Anyway, she works in this uh, this this house as a social worker for a few years, but she still maintained her interest in aviation. She then became a member of the American Aeronautical Society. Uh, in the Boston chapter and was eventually elected its vice president. She was flying planes out of Denison Airport in Quincy, Massachusetts and helped finance its operation by investing the small sum of money that she had made in the past time working in Boston over those past few years. She also flew the first official flight out of the Denison Airport in 1927. She worked as a sales representative for Kenner Aircraft, Kenner being her uh, or aircraft of choice uh, ever since she started flying. She wrote uh, local newspaper columns promoting the flying, and it grew her local celebrity. So now we're finally starting to see the, the beginnings of celebrity aviator Amelia Earhart as she laid out the plans for an organization that she wanted to make devoted to female flyers. This leads us to her first great accomplishment as a, as a pilot, in 1928. So in 1927, Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. So basically, he just gassed up a plane and flew all the way across the Atlantic to Europe, which has never happened uh, in the history of the world. And then in 1928, Amelia Earhart did the exact same thing. She flew over to Southampton in England, where she was greeted as a hero, and then flew back to New York City, where she was also greeted as a hero, given a ticker tape parade uh, along Broadway in Manhattan, uh, followed by a reception with the president at the time, Calvin Coolidge, at the White House. And from this, her celebrity grew a great deal. She would go around doing uh, an exhaustive lecture tour in 1928 and 1929, going from place to place talking about her life and especially her life as an aviator. Uh, Clothes were developed by Macy's and sold in Macy's stores based on her, quote, active living lines, which, you know, sort of started to break out that stereotype of women having to wear a certain type of clothing, so she was a pioneer in that way as well. She also promoted the flying game that she was in. She promoted aviation, especially towards women, starting uh, an organization called the 99s, where she served as its very first president, of course. Of course, after all of this, she still had that fire inside her, that active want to do something bigger and better Then the last thing she did. So the first transatlantic flight that she took in 1928, she took with a group of people or a crew. So it wasn't just her. It was her and some others that flew across the Atlantic and then landed and then flew back across the Atlantic and landed and had their parade and stuff. On the morning of May 20th of 1932, a now 34-year-old Amelia Earhart set off from Harbor Grace in Newfoundland in Canada with a copy of the Telegraph Journal given to her by journalist Stuart Truman, intending to confirm the date of her flight, she was going to attempt a solo flight, so by herself, across the Atlantic without a crew. She intended to fly to Paris in her single-engine Lockheed Vega 5B, 
uh, to emulate Charles Lindbergh's solo flight that had happened now five years earlier. She completed the flight in a record time of 14 hours and 56 minutes. Now, you think about that now, and you're like, holy shit, a flight lasting almost 15 hours from basically the easterly most coast of Canada to Europe. That sounds like a goddamn nightmare, but in 1932, it was a goddamn miracle. She made that in record time, and she landed in Londonbury, Northern Ireland. She intended to go to Paris. She didn't make it to Paris. She made it to Ireland instead. When she landed, it was witnessed by a man named Cecil King and another man named T. Sawyer. And when a farmhand asked, hey, how far have you flown? She said, I flew from America. So you can almost imagine like these just Irish guys being like, oh, look at this lass. She's just coming over here, just landing here. Where, where are you from? I'm, I'm from America. I'm from across the ocean. Holy shit. Thanks for landing in our weird little part of Northern Ireland. So she makes that flight despite a litany of crazy northerly winds, icy conditions, and she did have some mechanical problems, which is part of the reason why she wasn't able to make it to Paris, instead landing in Northern Ireland. But she did make it. So in 1932, she becomes a the first female to make a transatlantic flight by herself and, by the way, in record time. Later on, in 1935, Amelia Earhart made another bit of history, being the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to California, which was a hazardous 2,408-mile route longer than she had flown from the United States to Europe. Yes, you heard that right. Not just the first woman to fly solo from that, the first person ever to fly Solo aviator from Honolulu, Hawaii, and she ended up in Oakland, California. It took her 17 hours and 7 minutes, landing the next day in Oakland. And then later that year, she became the first person to fly solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City. Of course, that's a little less treacherous as you're over land most of the time instead of running over, you know, fucking water and the, the, the no man's land that is the open ocean. If you are any sort of Amelia Earhart historian and you know about her story, then you know that if she took that flight in 1935, you know we are starting to come up to the most famous part and most tragic part of Amelia Earhart's story, which took place in 1937. In 1937, Amelia Earhart planned to fly around the entire world. In early 1936, she started to plan this round-the-world flight, and she, being the maverick that she was, being the person she was, she wanted to make this the longest circumnavigating flight that ever took place. Now, she wouldn't be the first person who made a flight around the world, but she planned on it being a 29,000-mile trip, which would be the longest flight ever around the world, taking a mostly equatorial route, meaning obviously in the middle of the Earth. You could easily fly around the world technically if you just were at the North or South Pole and then just flew a little circle and be like, I went around the world. You know, that's, I guess, technically correct, and I guess technically correct is the best kind of correct if you watch The Simpsons, but she wanted to do it the old-fashioned way. She wanted to do it the hard way, and so she planned this 29,000-mile flight that featured a great deal of equatorial flying. So, 
in the first attempt, and yes, there were multiple attempts on this just to get it uh, exactly right in their eyes. In the first attempt, they planned on flying westward from Oakland to Honolulu and then going from there. So they start the leg, and mind you, this is the reverse flight of what she did a few years earlier for the first time. She flies from Oakland to Honolulu. They land there, and then due to some aircraft problems, her plane eventually gets damaged enough to the point where it kind of just is really not very salvageable, and they scrap the attempt right then and there. Later on, they make their way back to Oakland, California for the second attempt, and this time they are going to do the attempt from west to east instead of east to west, which they had done originally from Oakland to Hawaii. This time they were going to go from Oakland eastward. So she starts her flight and starts the plan, flying from Oakland and then landing in Miami, Florida. And then after arriving there, Earhart publicly announces her plans to circumnavigate the globe. So she sort of tries it at first going west, goes, oopsie-doo, I fucked up a little bit, I better do it the other way. Does it the other way, then finally sort of publicly announces the fact that she's about to make this happen. And during this, everything seems to be going extremely well. They fly from, uh, she's, by the way, she flies, when I say they, she flies with a man named Fred Noonan, who was her only crew member. They fly from Miami to South America, they make it to Africa, they make it to India, and they eventually make it to Southeast Asia, with, and, and eventually uh, down there into New Guinea on June 29th of 1937. At this stage, having completed 22,000 of the miles of the planned 29,000 miles of the journey, the remaining 7,000 miles would be over the Pacific Ocean. So on July 2nd of 1937, around midnight, they depart from New Guinea in their heavily loaded airplane. The intended destination was Howland Island, a flat sliver of land 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide. Just a little baby island in the middle of the goddamn abyss of the Pacific Ocean. So after having taken off the plan was to communicate with a ship from the U.S. Coast Guard that was stationed near Howland Island, the the Itasca. It was stationed there, so and its task was to communicate with Earhart's plane when they sort of reached the vicinity of the island, since the island was so small, and obviously they're so high up in the air, and the ocean is so damningly huge, that hopefully once they get in the vicinity of the island, they would start communications with the Itasca and they would guide them down to the island where they where, you know, she would then refuel, you know, fix anything up that needed fixing and then take off and continue on the flight. The unfortunate thing that happened that through a series of misunderstandings or errors, by the way, the details of which are still to this day controversial. The final approach to Howland Island using radio navigation was not successful. Fred Noonan, uh, uh, Earhart's co-pilot during this time, had earlier written about problems affecting the accuracy of radio direction, finding in navigation, so he sort of knew that this was going to happen. Another cited cause of possible confusion was possibly that the Itasca and Earhart planned their communication schedule using time systems set a half hour apart. 
Earhart using Greenwich civil time and Atasca under a naval time zone, putting them under different times, therefore allowing them not exactly to meet at the right time and ruining what would have been a fairly smooth radio transmission. There's also evidence to suggest that there was a new radio-finding band that was installed on her plane not long before she took off and that she didn't really understand very well how to use it. And that, of course, would cause confusion between her and who they needed to communicate with. Like, you think nowadays with how sophisticated communication is with everything that this would be no problem. This would be, a, this would be easy. You could do this in complete darkness and still hit your target. But things were so, so new and pioneering and nothing had been done like this at the time, really, that it was really easy for something to go wrong. And unfortunately for Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, things did go wrong. During Earhart and Noonan's approach to Howland Island, the Itasca did receive strong and clear voice transmissions from Earhart, who identified her vessel as a KHAQQ, that was her call sign, but she apparently was unable to hear voice transmissions from that ship in particular. Signals from the ship would also be used for direction finding, implying the aircraft's direction finder was also not functional at the time. The first calls, routine reports stating the weather is cloudy and overcast, were received at 2.45 in the morning. And just before 5 a.m. on July 2nd, these calls were broken up by static, but at this point the aircraft would still be pretty far from Howland Island. Then at 6.14 in the morning, another call was received stating the aircraft was within 200 miles of the island, requesting that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft to follow. Earhart began whistling into the microphone to provide a continual signal for them to hone in on. It was at this point that the radio operators on the Atasca realized that their RDF system could not tune to the aircraft's 3105 kilohertz frequency at 7:30 to 7:40 a.m. on an Atasca radio log reads quote Earhart on northwest says they are running out of gas only one half hour left can't hear us at all we hear her and are sending on 3105 ES 500 same time constantly and then about two minutes later KHAQQ Itasca, we must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. So back and forth between Earhart and the Itasca, they cannot see each other, even though they are fairly close to one another. They cannot see each other. They don't know where they are. They can't use their radios to hone in on each other because the technology is incompatible, and it's a really not good situation. Earhart makes a 7.58 a.m. transmission saying she couldn't hear the Atasca anymore and asked them to send voice signals that she could try to take a radio bearing. The transmission was reported by the Atasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequency she asked for, so they sent Morse code instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these, but she said she was still unable to determine their direction. The last known transmission that Amelia Earhart made was at 8.43 a.m. Earhart broadcast, quote, We are on the line 157.337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6201 kilocycles. Wait. However, a few moments later, 
She was back on the same frequency, which is 3105, with a transmission that was logged as questionable. We are running on line north and south, she said, seeming to indicate that she and Fred Noonan believed that they had reached Howland's charter position, but couldn't find the island itself. The Itasca then used her oil fire boilers to generate smoke for a period of time, trying to show them where they were visually, but the flyers apparently did not see it. The many scattered clouds in the overcast sky in the area around the island probably were sighted as the biggest problem, unable to see that smoke. The dark shadows on the ocean surface may have been almost indistinguishable from smoke that was coming up from the ship. Regardless, those were the last transmissions that anyone ever heard from Amelia Earhart and her uh, her co-pilot, Fred Noonan. About an hour after Earhart's last recorded message, the Itasca undertook an ultimately unsuccessful, of course, search north and west of Howland Island based on initial assumptions about the transmissions that they originally got from Amelia Earhart. The U.S. Navy then eventually joined the search over a period of about three days. They sent available resources to the area and the vicinity of Howland Island to continue the search. The initial search uh, by the Itasca did involve running up the 157-337 line that they had reported on the radio. The Itasca then searched the area to the immediate northeast of the island, corresponding to the area yet wider than the area searched to the northwest. Based on bearings of several supposed Earhart transmissions, some of the search efforts were directed to a specific position on the 281-degree line from Howland Island, which was northwest of the island. Four days after her last verified radio transmission, the captain of the uh, ship, the Colorado, received orders from the Commandant to take over all Naval and Coast Guard units to continue to coordinate the search efforts. The official search then ran until July 19th of 1937. $4 million was spent by the Navy and Coast Guard, which made it the most costly and intensive search in U.S. history, but failed to come up with anything. Earhart and Noonan were officially, at this point, lost at sea, at that point, never to be found again. This brought up, for the next probably seven or so decades, insane amounts of speculation on the disappearance of Earhart's thing. Now, if somebody normally had just disappeared like this, you might have had some sort of uh, some sort of outcry and maybe some some initial curiosity that eventually sort of uh, uh, falls to the wayside. But with Earhart's insane amount of celebrity and very public, you know, desire to circumnavigate the globe and having been so close to uh, to accomplishing this goal, still to this very day, People speculate as to what happened to Amelia Earhart for for decades. There were there were stories and there were, you know, the people saying, oh, they're just lost at sea. There's no way we could ever find them. They just crashed into the ocean and drowned and died. And the ocean's fucking huge. And their plane is so goddamn tiny that there's no way that we'll ever find them. You know, some people saying they crashed on a different island that wasn't Howland Island and lived out their lives there, lives, you know, that that almost sounds like really positive. Living out their lives may have meant living for another week or two before dying from, like, dehydration or something along those lines. Uh, Some people 
you know, speculated that they landed on an island and were captured by the Japanese. Uh, some people speculated that, you know, and when I speculated, I mean people making up crazy goddamn conspiracy theor- theories, speculated that Earhart and Newton were, you know, just disappeared out of thin air or were abducted by aliens or any sort of thing that you come up with when you can't figure out exactly what happened to them. And now the reason I decided to do this episode at this time was not just because Amelia Earhart is a an amazing and famous, you know, female of note during the month that I'm doing these stories, but that just recently in the last couple of weeks there is a guy claiming that bones found at Nikamaroro Island, Nikamaroro Island being the name of the island that used to be called Gardner Island that was extremely close to Howland Island just to the south of it that bones that were found uh, earlier in time and taken to Fiji and uh, examined and 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 sort of looked upon originally being concluded that they were from a male that was about five and a half feet tall. A man named Richard Jantz later goes back and uh, uh, studies photographs of Amelia Earhart um, analyzing early, earlier data, uh, uh, figuring out her height using modern forensics techniques and other things. And based on the measurements of 2,700 Americans who died in the mid-20th century, the study concluded from Richard Jantz that Earhart's bone measurements were more closely matched to those uh, Nikamarora bones than 99% of the reference sample. He then concluded that the bones had to be the remains of Amelia Earhart. Of course, skeptics criticize the study for being based on little factual evidence. Of course it is. In particular, seven measurements from the skeleton done in 1941. And they doubted the accuracy of those measurements. And of course, those bones which went to Fiji to be examined were misplaced and can never be re-examined, of course. So, if you are... Any person who hasn't been living under a rock, you probably heard the news story a couple weeks ago that said, oh my God, we finally found Amelia Earhart. We've did it after so many years, after, you know, 80 years of looking, we finally found her. It's this. Really, that's about bones that were found off Gardner Island, which is fairly close to Howland Island relatively based on how much fuel they had left. Um, The bones originally were thought to be male bones based on the structure, and then the guy goes back and looks and says, oh, these are actually probably female bones, and the only person who could possibly match those bones from the time period based on my sample size of people is Amelia Earhart, therefore these are her bones. To this day, in conclusion of this episode, to this day we don't know exactly where she landed how she landed, how she died, what happened to her exactly. Even this most recent story has its own skepticism built into it, so we cannot be 100% certain that it was her that those bones belonged to. And the search will never end. It will continue into infinity because as time passes, things become more and more difficult to figure out. And this newest story is probably the closest we'll ever come to maybe figuring out what happened to the amazing and trailblazing, the amazing and trailblazing Amelia Earhart. And now for your fact of the week. (music) 
the first fax ever sent. You know the you know faxing. You know about a fax machine, right? That old ass shit that we still use for some goddamn reason because fax machines can never ever die. The first fax ever sent was in 1843 and then later made better in 1848. So the first fax was sent on these primitive little telegraph fax machines while people were goddamn walking around with oxen on the Oregon Trail. Huh. Technology. It's weird. And so it goes. We've reached the end of episode 31 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. Currently, my friend Cole and I are engaged in posting clips of baseball players throwing pitches and hitting balls, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting if you're into baseball. So you have that to look forward to if you follow me there. You can follow the show on Twitter at the Couch Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You will find us there. You can download the show literally anywhere podcasts can be downloaded: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Overcast, there's a million others that I don't list every single week. Google Play, all the things that I can't remember off the top of my head. But if you have a podcast app, you can find this show. While you're there, leave a review, rate the show, and remember to subscribe. That way, you can just ignore my little postings that I make every Friday morning on Facebook because you'll already have the episode available to you without me having to prompt you. Next week, guys, we end our Ladies Month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast with our final episode of the month. It is going to be about Marie Curie and her insane amount of science. Guys, look forward to that, and I will see you next